What's going on, everybody? AJ here bringing you yet another episode of the E1B2 Collective Podcast, Employees First, Business Second, as always. Um, I'm just scrolling through my Startup EX uh, Best Practices Master List that I put together about a year ago. I spent, uh, well, first, I didn't originally put it together a year ago. It was... um, it was a combination of years and years and years of best practices, case studies, perspectives, little notes, little tidbits, um, things that I was pulling from all different sources, McKinsey, Gallup, Deloitte, um, Angela R. Howard, who has been a colleague and a dear friend from afar, um, other HR and employee experience practitioners, David Rock, Keith Ferrazzi, the list can go on and on, you know, Sherm, Sherm blogs and, and, and case studies. So I, I've, I've, I've spent years upon years of collecting these points of views and these insights and these best practices and this data. Um, a lot of it has been because of when I was actually in-house, I would utilize these notes and these tips and these perspectives to help me get good work done. Number two, the number one reason is a lot of people don't know this, but I suffer from severe ADD. And so with that, what inevitably has to occur is with that ADD, it turns into a situation where I personally have to format my thoughts and my best practices and my initiatives very differently than most. And then and then the third variable is it's just so important to have Lots of different thoughts, perspectives, tips, insights at your fingertips at all times. There's no human way possible that the greatest heads of people in this world are able to consistently innovate what they do if they are not keeping these best practices at their fingertips in some sort of for, in some sort of structure or formation like this. There's just no way. The brain is not wired that way. The brain is wired to do what you know how to do best to apply your tried and true methods and your methodologies. And inevitably, if you think about a nine to five workday, five days a week, week over week over week, you're going to find yourself doing those tried and true best efforts. You're very seldom going to find yourself pushing the limits and adding new insightful thoughts. So this is why I have it. And uh, today, I'm just going to scroll through and pull random things off of these um, of this master list here and give my thoughts here. So the number one thing that I pulled up as I scrolled through, and I probably have, let me give you an accurate number. Um, I have a, I have 296 pages in Google Docs, filled, by the way. I mean, sorry, that was me sipping a couple, uh, taking a sip of coffee here. Um, each one of these tips, notes, insights, I mean, they're filled. You know, these notes and insights are structured in such a way it, it looks like a it looks like a university or a college level, um, you know, thesis, if you will. Right. These aren't just a bunch of notes sporadically um, popped on a page here. But anyway, I want to get into a couple of things. So the first thing I popped up here, it says, I think a simple way to bake empathy into the hiring process is to unpack how an applicant would desire to experience the interview. Let me unpack below. So this is me writing a note to myself. It says, the very first thing it says here is as an organization and leadership, we can identify and provide various examples of how the interview can go, thus giving an applicant a choice around how they would like to experience the interview. 
A version of this would be providing a beyond beyond resume experience from an internal execution perspective. So this right here is something that I want to break down. I think it's incredibly important to have some sort of data that can give you a, a good reading on how applicants are experiencing your interview process. I'll give you a couple of variables of that. How inclusive is your interview process? How psychologically safe is that process? How are you baking in innovation into the process? How are you baking in moments where you shift the power of control and the applicant feels like they have a little bit more ownership of the process? How are you getting a good read on if this is going to be a good fit? Excuse me throughout the process, and so on and so forth, right? And then inevitably, some data points that you really got to look into is inevitably, you know, what's the first 90 days of that new hire? Did you have success overall, and let's call it in a 12-month window of this new hire? Where do you feel the alignment is with this new hire? What are the NPS scores that you can recall or you can extract from the new hire six months later, eight months later, 10 months later, 12 months later, 18 months later, whatever it's going to be? Um, to get even more detailed in here, though, giving the applicants a choice and laying out and having the ability to lay out different scenarios of how the interview can go, I think is incredibly behooving of an applicant and is definitely an employee's first methodology. So let me break that down. There's a couple of different ways interviews can go. I think you can have a co-collaborating interview process where um, the applicant and the employer kind of sits down after the screen call and lays out what the employee and or applicant expects, what the employer expects. And they literally co-create a document saying, okay, here's how this four-part interview is going to go. You can have what I think most companies have, which is an equitable, tried and true. This is what every single person that goes through this interview process within this company is going to do and how they're going to experience this company. And there's no say from the employee. You can, I think you can go to previous employees that have been hired recently and ask them about how they would like to have different variations of the interview process go, get their insight and then bake in a third or fourth option. But whatever options you have, no matter if you have one option, three options, 10 options, I think it is incredibly interesting, empathetic, behooving of the applicant to be able to give them different versions. And here's the number one reason why. Not every single, the punchline is you want to get the best out of someone, right? This happens a lot in the sports world. Let me take another sip of the coffee. The NFL has this thing called the NFL Combine. And it's pretty much a moment where the NFL is assessing and understanding the greatest talent coming out of the collegiate ranks. And they've gone through each year trying to innovate the process and trying to give each person within that combine the best opportunity to show up at their best. And the only way you can do that is understand consistently through research who who shows up at their best based off of different variable changes. So for instance, there are certain athletes that show up best with, with those, uh, with those kind of those tight spandex shorts on an under armor shirt and some cleats. There are others that show up best 
having the option of wearing the same sweatpants and sweatshirt and cleats that they always wore in college. There are other athletes, athletes that work best on fresh grass. There are other athletes that work, work best if they have certain coaches in their, in their corner. What I'm trying to say is if you can bake in enough empathy and flexibility where you're giving those athletes a little bit of a choice around how they can craft and mold their experience during the combine, that's going to build psychological safety for that athlete. That's going to build comfortability for that athlete. That's going to build trust and understanding and patience and excitement for that athlete. That's going to build um, that's going to build a moment where the athlete is going to feel incredibly comfortable. And so that person is going to be able to show up at their best. You want the same for the employee or the applicant, because I know for a fact the way that I show up at my best throughout an interview process is incredibly different than the way that my wife shows up for an interview. It's incredibly different than the way that her mother would show up for an interview. It's incredibly different than the way that my brother would show up for an interview. Everyone has different structures and systems and ways that interviews can go, right? I know for me, I appreciate keeping things at enough of a high level, diving into the depths of the role when needed, but having, I just appreciate that that organic feel, right? I appreciate not as much structure, a little bit more of a just loose two practitioners talking shop, trying to figure out, I like the co-creation process. I like the co-creation feel. Um, that's something that I really appreciate. If you put me in a structure, in a setting where I have to take a test that's structured, that's methodical, that's timed, I don't work well in those environments and I wouldn't work well. And I've seen too many companies pass over employees that I objectively feel could and should and would be the best fit for that particular company. And they miss them only because the interview process didn't have enough flexibility within it. So I think that's something that a lot of companies should think about. The second thing is that I wrote here is empathy also looks like having an operational practice where every three to six months we are doing um, during any phase of hiring season, the organization pulls data directly from the most recent hires and makes changes contextual to the feedback, allowing most of the recent hires act as strategic advisors. I kind of just talked about this. I think this is phenomenal. I advise every company to do this. Uh, what's another one here? Um, finding, it, finding out the emotional, um, the real emotional root the story of why someone wants to join an organization through nuanced of, of deep conversation, um, uh, of deep understanding, of, of, of deep variable variables of circumstance, right? I think, I think something that goes missing within the interview process today, I think a lot of companies selfishly want employees to be so excited about the product, so excited about the service, so excited about the mission. But why don't you as an employer... Why don't you get excited about why they need the job? Don't you want a motivated employee? Don't you want the motivations of what you need and what the employee needs to align? Don't you want an employee that's hungry? Don't you want an employee that's going to fight? Don't you want an employee that's going to think proactively? Don't you want an employee that's going to bring so much innovation, so much pride to their work? And if you can catch an employee at a personal time in their life where they need that job, they need an opportunity. They just need a break. You want someone like that, even if they're less technically qualified. 
than someone else. Because the person that is overly qualified for the role, has every certification, every credibility in the world, what you're going to find, what you really are going to find is if that person is not motivated, if that person does not have an internal motivation that is aligned with the motivations that you're looking for within that role, you may find that in, that individual leaving your company, finding that individual disgruntled early, finding misalignments early. And so now you have an incredibly talented individual not performing at their best. So just a, just a few thoughts there. I want to talk about also this, um, this quiet quitting trend that's been happening here. I haven't, I haven't given my thoughts on this because honestly, a lot of the work, <laughs> a lot of the work that I've done throughout my career has been based around avoiding a lot of this. So for those that don't know, this quiet quitting phenomenon or moment in history has always been based around, there's a certain segment of employees that you have in your company right now that are just not speaking up and not telling the truth about how they actually feel within their team, how they feel about the direction of the company, how they feel about their leader, and frankly, how they feel about where they're going to inevitably be going with their career within the next six months, right? They're planning on leaving, or they may be already in the process of doing that, right? Pretty big problem. Here's what I always believe that companies could do to avoid that. I believe a couple things need to happen. I always believe that at the highest levels of the company, I'm talking a CHRO, I'm talking a chief of staff, I'm talking the C-suite executive of each and every department or the, or the senior VP of each and every department. I believe those individuals need to be very thoughtful, very methodical, mandate and be very careful about the leaders that they put in the positions at the manager level, at the floor level, that are looking over team sizes of eight to 12, and be very thoughtful about how those individuals are carrying out their executions as a leader. Be very thoughtful about how, how empathy, how one-on-ones, how understanding, how best practices and systems around all of those are being baked into the responsibility of their role. I think leaders at that VP level, C-suite level need to be very thoughtful and careful and strategic around how they're structuring the role of these lower level managers, right? These lower level managers need to have time to build actual human-based re- relationships with these with these new hires. I mean with these with these employees in these team sizes of 8 to 12. They need to be able to really cultivate and understand a beyond brand or a beyond resume type data to genuinely understand the operational workflow desires, the career mapping needs, the decision making needs. The, I mean, I, I, can, I, I can go in length around all the needs that human beings that are working at a professional level need and how the manager should, be, should have a pulse on that. They should understand that. They should know that. They should have a clear understanding of where each and every employee, where they want to go, how they want to work, what they want to do, what opportunities they need, what tools they need, the input they need, the accessibility they need, the communication flows they need, the 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 micromanaging moments that that will actually fuel them, that will actually harness in their focus, the micromanaging moments that will actually provide and cause a threat response, the the ways that they want to be involved through innovation and new ideas and decisions. Every, because, because of those things that I just mentioned, that's why people leave. 
People leave because of money, obviously. But people also leave because they don't have enough of a voice. They don't have enough of a, a input in decisions. They don't have a they don't have a clear roadmap from a career mapping perspective. Maybe they want to do some inter- internal mobility, and there's no one in the company, even at the lowest managerial level, that has their back or even has a plan to do that. There's just so much data around why individuals want to leave companies that. Human beings at the lowest levels, at the managerial levels, don't know because the executives have not put enough mandates, enough rules, enough processes, enough bandwidth into their infrastructure of how those individuals as managers should do their job. So we're a lot of data just falling through the cracks. So the quick and easy fix is to understand your leader rubrics, understand and mandate and really have a clear structure around how the managers you decide to lead a small team of six to 12, how are they actually going to strategically bake in empathy? How are they going to, what data are they, are they going to collect? How are they going to be, how are you going to mandate as a C-suite executive that they work and utilize that data to make change, to make impact? You should be proud as a VP if your manager is fighting you arguing with you, debating with you, and, 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 and scratching and clawing to, to, to get more money for their team, to get, more, to get more flexibility for their team, to push for more empathy and internal communications and knowledge and insight for their team, to, to build more psychological safety. If you as a VP are, are, are having often moments where you feel like you're fighting with your manager because your manager is just fighting so hard to extract and get as much data as they can to make sure that there's high levels of retention within their team and high levels of productivity. You should be praying to the gods and saying, thank you. Thank you that I have a manager that cares so much. This is what the company, this is what companies need. And I believe that little subtle variable right there can help so much stop or slow down or put a pause to some of this quiet quitting phenomenon that's happening. So um, I'm going to wrap this up. Got to get back to studying. But these are a few thoughts, insights, perspectives that I hope you take seriously, that I hope you all can get behind. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks a lot.